Good morning and welcome to RTHK. This is China Takes Over the World, a new program about China's rising economic, political, and military influence in the world. I am Ying Ma. Today we discuss China's continued economic reform efforts as well as its economic competitiveness vis-a-vis the United States. We are thrilled to have with us Mr. Robert Herbold, former chief operating officer of Microsoft and managing director of the Herbold Group. In the second half of the program, we will be joined by Barry Naughton, professor of Chinese economy at the University of California, San Diego. But first, we welcome Bob Herbold to the program. Mr. Herbold, good morning to you. Hi there, Yang. It's great to have you with us.、Uh, before we get started、uh, with the, the discussion on China's economic competitiveness,、um, I, I did want to take advantage of our time with you today and ask you for your thoughts on the n- new CEO that's been named for Microsoft uh, uh, and uh, Mr. Bill Gates' return to Microsoft as a technical advisor. Well, I think that. There are a lot of pluses in the final selection that they made, and that、uh, Satya is a seasoned veteran at Microsoft. He knows the company well, and that's a big plus.、Uh, it's also good that Bill Gates is going to be spending a bit more time、uh, at the company.、Uh, he's a real asset; always has been, always will be.、Uh, the big risk, of course, is. You know the technology industry requires major innovation on a regular basis, and、uh, that's the challenge for any technology company, and it certainly is the challenge for Microsoft. Well,、um, uh, Satya Nadella obviously is the、uh, chief executive named to Microsoft recently. But well,、um, let's now talk about China. Back in 2011, you wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal titled "China versus America," which is the developing country. And in that piece, you praised China's infrastructure-building, government leadership, and can-do attitude, and you criticized America for quote getting beaten because the U.S. government. Can't seem to make big improvements. Unquote. And you also wrote, "quote The autocratic Chinese leadership gets things done fast. Currently, the autocrats seem to be highly effective." Unquote. Now it's been a few years since you wrote that op-ed. Are your views about China today still as rosy as they were back in 2011? Well, I'd say they're、uh, about the same.、Uh, maybe not quite as rosy, but.、Uh... Uh, I mean, I'm quite positive in general. I think that if you say, "Well, you know, what are the good things that are happening?"、Uh, when you see, for example, in 2012, 79 Japanese, or excuse me, Chinese companies in the Fortune 500、uh, versus only 13、uh, about 10 years ago,、uh, that's major progress.、Uh, You also read statistics like you know 160 cities now have a population of over one million people.、Uh, those are great markets、uh, for companies.、Uh, it's no wonder that the, uh, uh, the industrial part continues to make progress.、Uh, on the infrastructure,、uh, the the good news is you know you continue to、um, put new airports in place, and it's my understanding that over the next five years.、Uh, Looking at the projects that are either started or will be started and completed within the next five years, that there are well over、uh, 40 new airports going to be in place.、Um, 
Right. And in your piece a, a few years ago, if I remember correctly, you complained that LAX, Los Angeles International Airport, for instance, is cramped and dirty. Yeah. And, and I, I, it still is. I, I, I couldn't agree more about, uh, about LAX. It's, it's one of the airports I dislike the most in the world. But, um, and, and of course, you know, you, you compare that to new and shiny airports like those right. in, in Beijing and, and Shanghai. But, but, um, the since the financial crisis, China has built a lot of infrastructure, railways, airports, Correct. residential units, and even yep. entire towns that are in the middle of nowhere and are used by very few people. So should America really pine for this type of infrastructure, even well, if it is new and shiny? Well, I think that what the U.S. should be doing is making sure that the right kind of maintenance is done on, for example, the interstate highway system. Uh, that's not occurring today the way it should. Uh, some of these airports, and LAX is a, uh, a, a clear candidate, uh, obviously need some overhaul. The new international terminal at LAX is, uh, is nice, but, wow, uh, making a change from an international flight uh, to a domestic flight weaving your way through all of those uh, various uh, facilities you have to get through to get to the right place is, is really a zoo. Uh, uh, there's a, another important change that's had a, you know, a big impact, which is there's a lot of emphasis on the services sectors in China uh, versus manufacturing these days, and good progress has been made on that front, I think, that uh, uh, we'll probably see continue to see more of that if the current leadership uh, uh, in terms of the standing committee executes what uh, seems to be uh, uh, after and and seems to be happening. Right. Well, Brian, and the current leadership has said that it's very serious about transitioning China's economy from an export-driven economy to one that's more Um, consumer-driven. Let's talk a bit about innovation. Now, that's something that the Chinese government cares a lot about. Um, And, for instance, Beijing has has this habit of designating which industries are are to be innovative and then pouring big money into supporting those industries and solar is one such industry but but that industry now suffers from immense overcapacity right. do do you think that china's top down approach to innovation really could produce the type of success that we've seen in companies like microsoft and and to go back to what you said earlier about you know some of the um, Fortune 500 companies that are now Chinese um, owned. Many of those companies are are in fact state owned enterprises, and they're not exactly the best yep. candidates for innovation. So, so you know, we we're very interested in your thoughts on this issue. Well, you see quite an increase in the number of patents, and you see the the, the placement of those patents in terms of where they're happening in China. Uh, to line up pretty well with the areas of emphasis, uh, for example, in digital communications, uh, about uh, 25% of, of China's patents in 2012 were in that area, and they've obviously claimed that areas such as digital communications, telecom, uh, are a high priority. Uh, it's also, you know, from a U.S. standpoint, a bit scary to see Chinese government uh, or the Chinese country in large uh, filing more patents in 2012 than the United States. So um, some of those things are beginning to happen. Uh, 
I think that you ask a question about, you know, uh, state-owned focus, so to speak, uh, uh, versus, you know, a, a pure entrepreneurial. Right, right. Know, I mean, if, right. Bloom, so, but, you know, if, if, if people are focusing on particular industries because the government wants them to, is subsidizing them to do so, is that really a way to promote innovation? Well, I think that it is, to tell you the truth, because if you look at Silicon Valley, uh, the same kind of focus occurs without a lot of government inter- intervention and some government intervention in the case of where are the funding, epi- you know, uh, re- you know, funding sources from the government, what areas are they going into? And uh, so I think that if you went to Silicon Valley today and asked the typical venture capital person, what are the three or four areas that uh, the probability is high that a, there's going to be consumer interest, and B, you're going to be able to, you know, come up with a bright idea. They'd be able to, I think, uh, isolate them pretty well. And frankly, it wouldn't be a whole lot different in terms of that list than what you see uh, being the areas of China's focus. So I don't see uh, this, shall we call it, you know, firm direction uh, coming from the Chinese government uh, being a big problem as long as they're you know, focusing on the areas that count. And when you look at, you know, computer technology in general and digital communications and the like, uh, boy, those are the right areas. We are speaking with Bob Herbold, former COO of Microsoft. Um, What about the rule of law? Obviously, the legal system in China can be corrupt and arbitrary and unpredictable and and even well, I think that now let's get into some of the challenges which have emerged over the course of the last three years. Uh, uh, Internet freedom uh, is a huge issue. Uh, it relates somewhat to, uh, you know, uh, what we call the First Amendment here in the United States, which is free speech. And uh, a lot of developing countries are having, a, especially in Asia, having a lot of trouble with this and that they're not used to uh, uh, hearing people say such frank, such frank things, uh, so that that is a big issue. Uh, right, right, and I wasn't even referring to anything that controversial. I was referring to things like you know intellectual property protection, which is something that's been an issue for Microsoft in China in the past because huge. it's been a huge victim of intellectual property theft. And and so the question is, you know, even if we're staying primarily in the economic realm, can China really be economically competitive and technologically innovative if it doesn't have a legal system that can properly protect not just people from, you know, human rights abuses, but also companies from intellectual property theft, contracts, you know, uh, that can be, you know, protect contracts and, and their enforcement value and all of those things? Well, I think that, you know, uh, you probably know that issue better than I do, um, given your much closer exposure to China. But from a distance, uh, I think, you know, the West, let's call it Europe and the United States, would view the the, the problems in terms of um, the rule of law continuing to be an issue relative to China. But uh, the good news is, I think, as Chinese companies emerge where they can get hurt by these things, uh, that's where you're seeing some improvement uh, because they are beginning, I think, to understand the impact of some of these practices and that when it starts to hurt them, 
they're going to act more sensibly, so to speak, from a U.S. standpoint. So uh, we shall see, but they should put that on the list of major challenges. There's no doubt about it. What What do you think America should do to increase its economic competitiveness vis-a-vis China in the 21st century? Well, I think that it should worry about its competitiveness in the absolute, uh, not necessarily, uh, you know, just versus China. Uh, I think that what has to be done is, is you know, what your typical entrepreneur has to do all the time, which is have the right kind of setting so that the uh, uh, the thinking and development and experimentation can take place. And uh, it has traditionally been a strength of the U.S. Uh, a lot of the U.S. funding of pure research uh, uh, has been pulled back, and there's a lot of screaming going on in that regard. But on the other hand, uh, uh, the innovators are still there. One thing that is frightening from a long-term perspective is that in terms of technology-oriented talent, uh, in other words, graduates uh, uh, in the physical sciences and engineering areas, uh, China is producing a huge number of students in these areas. Secondly, if you looked at graduate departments in the technology areas at our major universities, there's a high percentage of Asians, uh, many of which are going back home these days compared to staying here because of the difficulties in getting visas and the like. So it's a big issue in America. Uh, it's been a strength over the, the long term for the U.S. I have a hunch that it will be in the future as well, but I don't think the distance between the U.S. and China will be as great, and it's certainly not as great as it was five years ago or ten years ago. Well, we've been speaking with Mr. Bob Herbold, former COO of Microsoft and managing director of the Herbold Group. Mr. Herbold, thank you very much for chatting with us. Absolutely. Take care, Yang. Next, we will talk to Professor Barry Naughton of the University of California, San Diego, about the continuation of China's economic reform efforts. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Good morning and welcome back to China Takes Over the World on RTHK. I am Ying Ma. In this second half of the show, we are joined by Barry Naughton, professor of Chinese economy at the University of California, San Diego. Professor Naughton, good morning to you. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, it's great to have you. Uh, last November, the Chinese leadership issued a major communique and blueprint for reform after a conclave called the Third Plenary Session of the 18th Communist Party of China Central Committee. That was a whole mouthful. And by now, we've all heard that the uh, documents that the party issued emphasize the need to implement economic reforms that reduce the role of government and allow the market to play a, quote, decisive role in allocating resources, unquote, in China. Uh, less reported in the English press is that Chinese President Xi Jinping also issued a long accompanying explanation in which he said, quote, Theory and practice have both showed that market allocation of resources is the most efficient, 
unquote. Now, this is pretty remarkable, not to mention a little bit ironic, since President Xi also happens to be the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. So, Professor, should we be getting excited about the free market rhetoric coming from the Chinese Communist leadership? Is this a sign that they're indeed serious about undertaking real market liberalization? Well, I think they are serious,、uh, but I think the the context we need to put it in is that the、uh, the the reform rhetoric has gradually gotten degraded over the last ten years or so. I mean, one of the reasons people are are paying so much attention to the third plenum is that the 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 previous Hu Jintao Wen Jiabao administration really they kept talking about economic reform, but the 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 words and the slogans became. More and more empty, and I think people really had begun to to despair of serious、uh, movement forward in economic reform, and people had begun to feel more and more cynicism about the ability of the Communist Party to carry out economic reforms, and in particular to reform itself. Given how much the the party and government officials have become deeply involved in the economy and are are seen as as、uh, profiting personally from from so many things. So when so Xi Jinping in, came along with this type of rhetoric, it's quite exciting to a lot of observers and reform minded folks within China, right? Definitely, because it it、uh, not only did he. Uh, adopt a kind of revitalized vocabulary of economic reform, but he also identified himself personally very strongly with the reform project. So, in the second、uh, piece that you're referring to, not only did he use some very strong rhetoric, but he also claimed, you know, in essence, that the that the party resolution was really. Created under his personal guidance, and that he was the the, the the person behind it, really pushing it. So I think there really is a very strong effort here to reverse the erosion of credibility and really try and signal to the Chinese people that, in fact, the Chinese、uh, Communist Party and Xi Jinping can. Push for market-oriented reforms. Now, the same reform documents、um, in which the Chinese Communist Party pledged to give the market a decisive role in the economy,、uh, those do- same documents also emphasize the need to quote maintain the principal position of the public ownership system unquote. That, of course, refers to ownership by the state. What are we to make of the fact that Beijing appears in no hurry to dismantle its vast? System of state ownership, even while it's talking a very good game about market allocation of resources. I think we should understand it as、um, an attempt to to really build a a kind of dis- distinctive Chinese model in this case. I mean, the state sector that we're looking at in China today it's certainly big and powerful, but as a share of the overall economy, it's not that big anymore. Um, you know, we might think of it as as ten、uh, or twenty percent of the overall economy. In, in, But, term, in terms of what employment assets?、Uh, let's say assets. I mean, of, of course, we could have a long, complicated discussion about exactly how we measure the the different、uh, indicators. But if we think of it as sort of wealth,、um, it, you know, it would make sense to think of it as ten to twenty percent of the economy. But It's a very strategic ten or twenty percent of the economy. It's it has monopoly power. It's concentrated in in key sectors, and I think、uh, the best interpretation of the plenum document is that they've recognized that 
the that state ownership can't be synonymous with monopoly control and can't be synonymous with barriers to private enterprise but they haven't been willing to give up the substantial wealth that the government and thus indirectly the party holds through the state enterprise sector and so they're trying to to put it together with a much more efficient wealth management uh, approach to these assets. So one of the most difficult to interpret sentences in the whole resolution is they say, we're going to move from asset management to capital management. Now, frankly, in English, that, that doesn't really mean much of anything, right? But I think um, the most favorable interpretation of it is that they want to move the control of state assets to something like a sovereign wealth fund, to something like a Singapore model, where government ownership is still important, but it's seen as part of the public wealth rather than a direct instrument for controlling the economy. That said, they've got a long way to go before they can actually get anywhere close to that model. Well, let's let's talk about some of the specific uh, reform proposals that have been put on the table. So in, in the um, party documents uh, issued to last November, um, the party pledged to do things like phasing out price control and subsidies in the energy sector, uh, and, you know, to, um, it, it pledged other things like requiring state firms to pay more dif- dividends to the government, um, also allowing the private sector to take stakes in state-owned enterprises, um, and other measures. Do, do, do these reforms strike you as the ones that are, in fact, needed to improve the state sector and, and as well as to improve the broader Chinese economy? I think they're important steps in the right direction. Um, but in a sense, I, I think it's very important to not to think of the third plenum document as a reform blueprint. Um, it's not as strategic and as integrated as maybe some people hope. That would be the one the one side of it that could be construed as being a little bit disappointing. The way I characterize it is uh, it's a vision statement and a to-do list. All right, so each of the things that you, you mentioned just now, they're all important things, but they're, they're you know, responses to the to-do list. They're steps to take right now to address things that are widely recognized to be problems. So energy price distortion, uh, you know, limitations on the way ownership in state firms is managed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think they they were careful to include several important, significant, immediate steps. But those immediate steps don't quite add up to a fully realized uh, strategic plan for reforming the economy. Uh, So there's definitely work that needs to be done. And what we see in the last couple months is Xi Jinping setting up a leadership small group, which he himself is heading. Then there are these leadership small groups at the provincial level and even the municipal level so that they're clearly changing the incentive environment, making sure the politicians understand they've got to get with the new program. But it's in a way, it's more of a mobilization phase than it is a reform design phase. 
And that, that presents some interesting paradoxes. We are speaking with Professor Barry Naughton of the University of California, San Diego. He is also the editor of a just-released volume titled Wu Jingland, Voice of Reform in China. The book contains essays by Professor Naughton and Mr. Wu, who is a celebrated and influential Chinese economist and a leading voice for reform in China. Uh, Professor Naughton, um, so it sounds to me like you're... Um, quite optimistic, or at least you see optimistic signs for reform being put into place by the new leadership um, uh, headed by President Xi Jinping and, and Premier Li Keqiang. Well, I'm, I'm definitely optimistic in the sense that um, I think this the third plenary session has been an important turning point from uh, really backing away from reforms to now once again making a, a, a very serious effort uh, to 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 realize significant reforms. Of course, there are there are really important challenges. So I'm not um, I'm not overly optimistic. I think it, one of the most interesting parts about the uh, the resolution and the way things have proceeded since then is the resolution stresses in many places the idea of negative lists. In other words, the idea of really trying to move forward to a system where private business people can do anything unless it's explicitly prohibited. And, of course, uh, as you well know, the sort of traditional Chinese method has been you can do whatever the government says you can do. And if they don't say you can do it, you, you cannot can. do it. Right, right. <laughs> right. Well, well, the resolution, obviously, is the, the long document that accompanied the communique from the third plenum. Um, but it, it didn't have much to say about privatization. In fact, the party seemed so allergic to that word that it kept referring to the private sector as the, quote, non-public ownership right. economy, unquote. Do you, I mean, and this actually gets to a broader issue, which is, do you think the Chinese government is actually interested in privatization, or does it just want to reform its state-owned enterprises to make them more efficient and more profitable, and hence better able to serve the interests of the party? I think that Xi Jinping is not interested in privatization at all. But I do think that he accepts that private businesses are more efficient and will outcompete state firms in most parts of the economy. I mean, after all, he was party secretary in Zhejiang, which has, you know, already is 95% private. And, and he had a reputation for, uh, you know, working reasonably well, quite, quite uh, compatibly with uh, private businesses in, in Zhejiang. So I don't think, I don't think he in any sense expects to, uh, you know, maintain that traditional kind of state control over the economy. But I do think he expects the state to hold on to some very wealthy assets. And I think he sees them as an important part of the Communist Party system, since Communist Party cadres, to a certain extent, come up through these large and wealthy state firms. And I think he, he envisioned, I mean, we're just speculating here, we don't know, but I think he envisions uh, maintaining that, that core system as a integral part of the political system and an important but still relatively minor part of the economic system. Uh, we now have a about 40 seconds left. In what ways do you expect the, the powerful constituencies behind these large state-owned enterprises in China to block the reforms that Xi Jinping um, wants to push through? And, and which reforms do you think these 
state-owned constituencies hate the most? Well, they, of course, will uh, they'll embrace the idea of reform and fight over the details. So I think we expect to see uh, some of the big state firms trying very hard to maintain their monopoly privileges and trying hard to undermine the growth and consolidation of private firms. Um, so, you know, it's the, the key thing so far, we don't know, you know, what the outline of the, of the next stage of reforms is. But what we do know is right now everybody has to at least pretend to be implementing reforms. <laughs> and in some places that makes a real difference. I mean, one, one quick example would be um, all of a sudden China's Internet companies, which are very efficient companies and private companies, are offering financial services. Well, that's a big change. Right, right, uh, right. And it's very popular, right? Why is that happening? Well, it's fundamentally happening because the third plenum document says if it's not prohibited, it's allowed. <laughs> right? And so the Internet companies jumped on that. The financial regulator said, okay, give it a try. Boom, we've got a, a, a new sector emerging. That bears some risks, but it also shows that uh, that the environment is changing and that, and that change is possible. Well, kudos to the entrepreneurial spirit of the Internet executives. Uh, we have been speaking with Professor Barry Naughton. Professor, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. This is China Takes Over the World on RTHK, and I am Ying Ma.